Welcome to Bible Center Church, and thank you so much for joining us on BC Podcast. Here's a message to encourage your heart this week. Good morning once again, Bible Center. It's good to see you again today. I understand that it has been communicated to the church that Pastor John King will be presented to you as a candidate for lead pastor. And I want to make a few comments about that this morning. He has not asked me to do that. He's not paying me to make any of these comments. I don't think he even knew I was planning to do this until I told him earlier I was going to roast him a little bit today. But um, I'm, not a, I'm not a pastor here. I'm not an elder here. I'm not even a member here. So I don't have any official say whatsoever. But I have come to love Bible Center, my wife and I both, very much through the years. First as a pastor in West Virginia who looked to this church as a model church for churches in our state. But more recently, as the Lord has allowed us opportunities to serve alongside your staff, it's been a joy, and we've come to love the people here and the ministry here. So I want to say a few things about my thoughts about this this transition to uh, Pastor John. John has a wealth of experience. He has uh, served as a Christian school teacher on the mission field and in the States, He has served as a youth pastor. He has organized youth camps on a level that has been even recognized nationally. He has been a coach. He's been a family ministries pastor. He's been a worship pastor, worship leader. He's been an uh, executive pastor here. And over the past year, along with Pastor Mike, you've heard Pastor John in the pulpit quite a bit, and you know that his preaching is outstanding. So what am I trying to say? Am I saying that John is a jack-of-all-trades and master of none? Absolutely not. John is one of those uniquely gifted and uh, qualified individuals and servants of God who whatever task God puts before him or whatever task he is asked to fulfill, he does that with excellence. And that uniquely, I believe, has positioned, positioned him here at Bible Center to understand the scope of ministry that this church does and also the unique challenges that uh, individual staff members face. He has served in many of those roles, and he has a deep understanding of what it takes to serve in those ways. I'm sure, I haven't been told this, I've not spoken to the elders, they've not spoken to me, but I am sure that they have seen that as they have diligently worked over this past year Uh, and prayed about what direction the church should move in. And I, again, I don't know this, no one's told me this, but my guess would be that they have come to the conclusion, why do a national search when we feel like there's no one better we could find than John King, who's already here? So I applaud the wisdom of your leaders. He already understands the culture of this region, which is so important in West Virginia. He understands the culture of the church. He loves Bible Center. He has served faithfully here. And there will be little, if any, learning curve for him. So a lot of pluses. But there's one thing that I think is most attractive to me about him being here. I just love his name. I really do. It's a great name. And how can you go wrong with with that name, right? Well, in this particular series on the transformed life, the focus in July is on how God uses those 
whose hearts he has transformed to then become transformation agents in the lives of others. Looking at biblical examples throughout this summer, your pastors have been leading you to see that there are great examples of the transformed life, a transformed heart, and then how God uses those transformed hearts to be transformation agents in the lives of others. Last week, we looked at Elijah. Today, we're going to be looking at a king in Judah by the name of Josiah. Josiah's story is recorded for us in the Word of God in 2 Kings chapters 22 and 23. We'll actually be starting today in 2 Kings chapter 21. As you find your place, let me just remind you a little bit of the background. It's important to understand a little bit of uh, history leading up to Josiah to, to understand how we got to him and how important his reign was and his ministry was in the nation of Judah. I want to talk with you a little bit about four kings in Judah. Now, if you know anything about your Old Testament Bible history, you know that after Solomon's reign, the kingdom of Israel split into two separate nations. The northern ten tribes kept the name Israel, and they had a number of kings, all of whom were evil, and so God sent them into captivity to the nation of Assyria. The southern kingdom took the name Judah, two tribes, Judah and Benjamin. They took the name Judah, and over the period of years, they had kind of a mixture of good kings and evil kings, but enough evil was done and enough turning away from the Lord that they would also go into captivity about 140 years after Israel went into captivity. But the four kings I want to introduce you to briefly would be starting with Hezekiah. Hezekiah is actually Josiah's great-grandfather. He was a good king in Judah and reigned for 29 years, actually himself led a revival in the nation of Judah. His son, Manasseh, this would be Josiah's grandfather, was a wicked king. He was the most evil king that Judah ever had. And he had plenty of time to institute his wicked and evil pagan idolatrous reforms because he reigned for 55 years. And so he had a lot of time to do evil, and he really instilled a culture of evil and idolatry in the nation. After 55 years of reign, his son, Ammon, came to the throne and followed those, that wicked pattern of idolatry and so forth, sin, in the nation of Israel, but he was assassinated after two years. And that thrust Josiah onto the throne when Josiah was only eight years old. Josiah would rule for 31 years. He was a godly king, the most godly king in all of Judah. And it's amazing, really amazing, given, given the uh, uh, history of his father and grandfather, but we'll see a little bit later some of the influences that may have led him toward having a heart for God. At a very young age in the kingdom, he instituted some religious reforms, but something would happen when he was 26 years old that would show him those reforms were not enough. The book of the law, the word of God, was discovered in a house cleaning in the temple and as it was read to Josiah, it transformed his own heart. And through him, God transformed the nation of Judah. 
Here's the take home that we get from Josiah's life. This is the overarching lesson that we find in Josiah's life, and it's this, God uses his word to transform people's lives. God uses his word to transform people's lives. Now, the story of Josiah unfolds kind of like a a drama or a play in three acts. Act one of this biblical drama is given to us in 2 Kings chapter 21, actually the lead up to Josiah's reign. In 2 Kings chapter 21, act one of this drama could be entitled this, the neglect of the word brings confusion. The neglect of the word brings confusion to individuals and to nations. It would certainly do that in Judah. As we open up this act in 2 Kings chapter 21, we see, first of all, the nation's spiritual confusion, verses 1 through 9. Let's look together at those verses. Manasseh was 12 years old when he became king, and he reigned in Jerusalem 55 years. His mother's name was Hephzibah. He did evil in the eyes of the Lord, following the detestable practices of the nations the Lord had driven out before the Israelites. He rebuilt the high places his father Hezekiah had destroyed. He also erected altars to Baal and made an Asherah pole as Ahab of Israel had done. We saw that last week with uh, Elijah's uh, ministry. He bowed down to all the starry hosts and worshiped them. He built altars in the temple of the Lord of which the Lord had said, in Jerusalem, I will put my name In the two courts of the temple of the Lord, he built altars to all the starry hosts. He sacrificed his own son in the fire, practiced divination, sought omens, and consulted mediums and spiritists. He did much evil in the eyes of the Lord, arousing his anger. He took the carved Asherah pole, which he had made, and put it in the temple of which the Lord had said to David and to his son Solomon, In this temple and in Jerusalem, which I have chosen out of all the tribes of Israel, I will put my name forever. I will not again make the feet of the Israelites wander from the land I gave their ancestors, if only they will be careful to do everything I commanded them and will keep the whole law that my servant Moses gave them. But the people did not listen. Manasseh led them astray so that they did more evil than the nations the Lord had destroyed before the Israelites. This is a shocking story. In order to make it more real to those of us here this morning, let me bring it right into these halls, this building, this auditorium. Let's say that you were to walk into Bible Center Church this morning, and as you come into the lobby, you would find a canopy over top that has been decorated with the different constellations and stars, major stars of the universe. And right in front of you, there is a huge picture of the sun. And as you come in, you are asked to bow down to the sun god who provides the warmth and and sustenance that this earth needs. And then you are asked to look up and worship the constellations and the stars which give us guidance in our lives. You're shocked. 
but you decide to walk on into the auditorium. And as you come into the auditorium, what you see shocks you further. There are two large poles reaching almost to the ceiling here, one on this side, one on this side. The one on this side is an Asherah pole carved in the image of a fully unclothed woman. The one on this side is a Baal pole carved in the image of a fully unclothed male. And there are male and female prostitutes ready to offer their services to anyone who wants to worship Baal or Asherah. You decide to go up to one of the rooms where your your group meets, and you walk in that room and you find several glass cases of snakes slithering and crawling all over each other. And at the front of the room, there is a, a brazen serpent, a bronze serpent like the one Moses erected in the wilderness in Numbers 21, which Israel would later come to worship. And you are asked to bow down to the snake God who gives us cunning and wisdom and knowledge. You decide to go down and see what's happening with the young people that you dropped off in the youth ministry. And to your horror, you find that they are being taught to use Ouija boards and they're in seances in their groups. They're being taught how to engage every possible demon and occult activity and bowing down before the power of demons in their lives. You rush back up to the auditorium and as you you go to flee out the building, you look inside and realize that they're doing a child dedication down here at the front now. And so you step inside just long enough to see what that's about. And again, to your horror and shock, you see that those parents who have brought their firstborn children exit through a side door where a big bonfire is out there in the side yard. And you can't believe what you see. You see the children's workers taking those little babies and throwing them into the fire, and you are asked to bow down and worship to the god Molech. How would you feel if that's what you saw here at Bible Center when you came on Sunday? I'm not trying to be crude. I'm not trying to be too graphic or shocking. That's not my purpose. My purpose is to get us to see this morning maybe just a little tiny glimpse of what an infinitely holy God would see and feel as he watched what happened in the very building where he told us twice in this passage, that was where I heard I wanted to put my name. It was my design to put my name there. And as he sees this, he is overcome with horror, with shock, and with righteous anger. If we would feel that way, certainly the infinitely holy God would feel that way. That's what spiritual confusion does to a nation, to a people when there is the absence of the Word of God, neglect of the Word of God. But that kind of spiritual confusion then leads to moral confusion. In verses 10 through 16, we're not going to take the time to read those verses, but in those verses, we find moral confusion flowing out of that spiritual confusion. There are two statements, however, in those verses that I would like to call your attention to. The first is in verse 10 which said that Manasseh did more evil than the Amorites who preceded him. Now, you you may not grasp the, the significance of that statement until you recognize who the Amorites were. 
The Amorites were a particular people group, but that term is often used in the Old Testament to describe all of the Canaanite tribal groups that lived in the land of Canaan before the Israelites were brought to the land to take it as their God-given possession. In Genesis chapter 15, God was reconfirming the, the Abrahamic covenant with Abraham, and he said to Abraham, your people will go to a foreign country. We would know it to be Egypt, and they will be slaves there for 400 years. And then I will bring them out and bring them into the land. And you see verse 16. Look at verse 16 on the screen of Genesis 15. In the fourth generation, here's the reason why it would take 400 years before they would get the land. In the fourth generation, your descendants will come back here for the sin of the Amorites has not yet reached its full measure. It took 400 years for the sin of the people of the land of Canaan to become so bad that God said, I must judge those people. And he would take his people into the land to judge them. It took Manasseh less than 50 years to reach the same level of sinfulness and evil before God said, enough, I will judge them. And in verses 12 and 13, he gives four, three different images of judgment. You can read those at some point. Three different images of judgment that show that judgment will be severe, it will be painful, and it will be complete. I will judge them. But the second statement that I want to call your attention to is in verse 16. That again shows what kind of moral confusion there was throughout the land. Moreover, Manasseh, verse 16, Manasseh also shed so much innocent blood that he filled Jerusalem from end to end besides the sin that he had caused Judah to commit so that they did evil in the eyes of the Lord. Shed so much innocent blood that it was like the blood of, of those that he had slain filled Jerusalem from one end to the other probably speaking of all the child sacrifices that were made to the god Molech, but also probably speaking of the number of prophets that Manasseh had slain. Jewish tradition tells us that one of those prophets that Manasseh killed was the prophet Isaiah. And as the Jewish tradition tells us, Isaiah was put into a hollow log of a tree and then the tree and Isaiah were cut in half. That's the kind of thing Manasseh was well known for. The kind of sin that would be so shocking and so evil. It seems as though the whole culture is spinning out of control and God's judgment cannot be far off. But what does that have to do with us? What about us? Does that speak to us in any way? Well, you're tracking with me, aren't you? You're probably ahead of me. Do we not live in days of spiritual confusion in our land? In the late 1800s in Europe, religious liberalism swept through that continent and spilled over into the United States in the first half of the 20th century, decimating practically every major denomination with liberal teachings about the Bible. Basically, liberal theologians said, the Bible is not given to us by God. It's not some kind of divinely inspired book. It's a production of men, just like us, just like any other religious book of any other major world religion. 
And so it has its share of errors, chronological errors, numerical errors, scientific errors, historical errors. You really can't trust everything it says, but you can follow the good teachings of the Bible. That's what liberal theologians taught. They scoffed at the Trinity as being a logical impossibility. They denied the deity of Christ. They said he cannot be the Son of God, but he was a good man, maybe the best of men, and a great teacher, and we ought to follow his teachings. They denied much of the supernatural, most of the supernatural of the Bible. They said the death of Christ really wasn't a substitutionary atonement for our sins, paying the penalty for our sins, but, but his death was an example to us of, of how people ought to be willing to die for what they believe in. What a sacrifice that was. That's how they saw the death of Christ. They denied the literal physical resurrection of Christ, saying, as sometimes we do when our loved ones die, oh, they're still alive in my heart. That's what they said Jesus coming to life meant, that he was just, we carry him in our hearts. They deny a personal second return of Jesus to this earth. They denied the miracles, giving rational, logical explanations for all of those. So basically, when liberal theologians got done with the church in America, all that was left was this. If you try to do your best and try to live by the, the Ten Commandments and try to live by the teachings of Jesus, particularly the golden rule, then God will smile on you and accept you, and you'll be okay. That's all that was left. Salvation by our own works. Nothing else was left. Thank God there were many churches who realized and stuck to the Bible and left those liberal congregations and, and denominations and stayed true to the Word of God. But there is still in our country today much spiritual confusion. You hear it on television. You can hear it on the radio. You are so blessed to be in a church that loves the Bible and believes what the Bible teaches. You're blessed to be here at Bible Center. And sometimes I don't think we realize what's happening in many churches in our country this morning, where it's just social commentary and just do the best you can, and that's all they have to offer because the liberals have ripped the heart out of the Bible. Spiritual confusion still reigns in our land, but that also leads, just as it did in Manasseh's day, to moral confusion. Because as we talked about last week, if you strip the authority away from the Word of God, if there is no authoritative truth in the Word of God, then there's only one authority left, and that's me. And that's what's happened in our culture in America. That's what's happened in the world as a whole. We get to form our own truth. We get to pick our own way of living. And that's the reason why there's such moral confusion in our country today. It's the reason why there's so much confusion about abortion, marriage, sexual expression, gender identity. I, I read a story just about three weeks ago that just highlighted to me the moral confusion in our country. Stories abound every day, but this one just really stuck out to me. A professor in a community college in Texas was fired about three weeks ago when four of his students 
walked out of his class and complained to the administration about what he was teaching. What was this professor teaching that would cause such a, 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 a rouse among the students? He was a biology professor who had been teaching for 20 years, and he was simply teaching that sex in the uh, form of gender was determined by the X and Y chromosomes. For teaching that, he was fired. Well, that's standard scientific truth in every science textbook since chromosomes were understood. And he'd been teaching it for 20 years. But today, if you don't go along with the sexual revolutionaries and their idea of how you get to choose your own gender, you can be fired for teaching what science teaches is true. Wow. You know, what that said to me was not only have we abandoned biblical truth and authority, in some cases we're even abandoning scientific truth and we're descending quickly into madness and insanity. There is moral confusion. I don't have to press that point, I don't think, any further. It's obvious to all of us who love the Bible, we live in a day of moral confusion. You know why? It came out of the spiritual confusion that originated with a neglect of the Word. A neglect of the Word brings confusion. That's Act 1. Act 2 of this biblical drama introduces us to Josiah, but the act itself could be titled, The Discovery of the Word Brings Repentance. The Discovery of the Word Brings Repentance. Now we come to chapter 22 of 2 Kings, and what we are introduced first is to Josiah's early reforms. Look at verses 1 and 2. Josiah was eight years old when he became king, and he reigned in Jerusalem 31 years. His mother's name was Jedida, daughter of Adiah. She was from Boscath. She did, he did what was right in the eyes of the Lord and followed completely the ways of his father David not turning aside to the right or to the left. Now, we're introduced to King Josiah here. Amazing. He starts, be, uh, starts becoming king. He becomes king when he's eight years old. Amazing. But his early reforms really are described for us a little bit more clearly in the book of Second Chronicles, which is basically the priestly look, the priests looking at the same history that the author of the Kings wrote. So in 2 Chronicles chapter 34 and verse 3, we find this. In the eighth year of his reign, okay, so that's when he's 16 years old, while he was still young, he began to seek the God of his father David. In the twelfth year, that's when he's 20, he began to purge Judah and Jerusalem of high places, Asherah poles, and idols. So see, when he's when he's uh, 16 years old, he begins to follow the way of David. How did he know about the way of David if there's been such a neglect of the Word of God? Well, there's some other possible influences in his life. One may have been his mother. It's not always when you see a king listed that his mother is also mentioned. In this case, she is, and I think it may be because her name literally communicates who she was. Her name means beloved by Yahweh, beloved by Jehovah, beloved by God. 
And I think the fact that the author mentions her name probably indicates to us she lived up to that name. But there were also a couple of prophets who were active in Josiah's day. One was Zephaniah, and the other was Jeremiah. Jeremiah would would mainly minister in, in his later years, but maybe one of those prophets had an impact on him as well. But whatever the influence was, at the age of 16, he began to follow the ways of David, which basically, in our terminology today, we would basically say God worked in his heart to draw him to himself, and he became a believer. This would probably be the time where he embraced faith for himself, faith in the God of Israel, followed the way of David. But the second thing he did, according to that verse, was he began to purge Judah and Jerusalem of idolatry. This is when he's 20 years old. His early reforms are stated for us there. But then that leads us to Josiah's discovery of the law. This all happens before he ever hears the word of God. So it has to be the influence of maybe the prophets, maybe his mother. He's learned about David, wants to follow the God that David served. But notice what happens in verses 3 through 10. We're not going to read these verses but they describe for us the repair of the long-neglected temple. The temple had been neglected, basically, during the reign of Manasseh and Ammon. It was only used for pagan worship. Everything else was put aside, stored away in some back closet somewhere. And as you read that story, you find that, that as they were cleaning out the temple and getting all of the things cleaned out that needed to be out of there, all the idolatrous stuff, and and looking for the things that reflected the worship of Jehovah, they found a copy of the book of the law. Hilkiah, the chief priest, actually found the book, and in verse 8, he says, I have found the book of the law in the temple of the Lord. The Hebrew language always does word order to make emphasis. And in the Hebrew, it literally says, the book of the law I have found. The emphasis is not on, "Hmm, look what I found. The emphasis is on the book of the law. You see, that's, that's what the emphasis is. That's the emphasis of this whole story, is the book of the law. So the book of the law was discovered. It had probably been hidden away by faithful priests at the beginning of the reign of Manasseh. Now, do the math. Manasseh had reigned 55 years. His son Ammon, two years. We are now in the 18th year of Josiah's reign. 75 years. Can you imagine? Just just try to imagine this. What if every Bible in America had been confiscated and taken away And there was only one copy that somebody hid in a church in Philadelphia somewhere. And that happened in 1948. That's what we're talking about here. Can you imagine? Um, I look around and see some of you that were born by 1948. Maybe a lot of you in this service, but some of you were not. Many, Many of us were not yet born. That's what it would be like not to have any Bible for 75 years. 
And finally, it's discovered. No wonder Hilkiah said, the book of the law. Look what I found. The book of the law. I found it. So the discovery of the law takes place. But what I want you to see next is Josiah's response to the law. Look at verse 11. Verse 11 says, When the king heard the words of the book of the law, he tore his robes. That's a sign of repentance. It's a sign of deep grief that recognizes one's own sin and wants to confess that sin and be right with God. That's what the tearing of the outer garment, the robe, would would communicate in that day. So this is showing his repentance. Then verse 12 says, He gave these orders to Hilkiah the priest, Ahikam the son of Shaphan, Akbor son of Micaiah, Shaphan the secretary, and Asiah the king's attendant. Go and inquire of the Lord for me. That expression literally means, go and find someone who can explain this book to us. Go find someone that can help us understand what it means. So go inquire of the Lord for me and for the people and for all Judah about what is written in this book that has been found. Great is the Lord's anger that burns against us because those who have gone before us have not obeyed the words of this book. They have not acted in accordance with all that is written there concerning us. You see his concern? His concern was not just religious reforms like he had done earlier. His concern was to bring the life, his own life first, and the life of the nation back into square with the word of God. His concern was we have not obeyed the word of God. We need to get back to the word of God. His response was genuine conviction, deep repentance. Reforms are not enough. We must search our hearts by the word of God, expose, confess our sin so that we can be cleansed by the Lord. There's one thing that I'd never really noticed till I was studying this passage. I'd never seen this before, and it, it to me was so significant. When Hilkiah found the book of the law in verse 8, he says, I have found the book of the law. Now, what he does is he gives it to the secretary, the scribe, Shaphan, and Shaphan is the one who takes it to King Josiah. Now, in verse 10, when Shaphan gives it to the king, he says, Hilkiah the priest has given me a book. He doesn't identify what the book is. He doesn't say it's the law of God. He just says he's given me a book. And when he begins to read it in Josiah's hearing, God speaks through his word, doesn't he? And God began to speak powerfully to Josiah, even though I don't believe at that moment he understood that this was the word of God. It was just a book that had been found in the temple. But as he read it, God's spirit moved through those words as he does to challenge Josiah's heart. That, to me, just demonstrated the amazing inherent power of the Word of God. What about us? What about our day? What our day is not like Josiah's day. The Bible is abundantly available to us today. That's wonderful, but it's also dangerous. Because in a day where we have several Bibles at home, where we can hear the Bible preached and taught, at the click of a dial, push of a button. It becomes so common to us. 
and we become immune to the Bible. Thus, we become apathetic. Somebody's getting ready to preach on John 14. Oh, I know John 14, and so we put our minds in neutral. Psalm 23, our minds go in neutral. Romans 8, our minds go in neutral. Philippians, we just studied that last week in our, in our study group. I know Philippians, and so when we hear it, we just, our minds go into neutral. We don't need that anymore. I know that. That's dangerous. So what we need to do in our culture is to rediscover the Word of God. We need to rediscover it. Every time you hear the Word of God preached, every time you hear it taught, every time you read it for yourself, our approach should be this. Lord, help me to to read, to hear with fresh eyes, with new insight, with relevant application. I think Psalm 119 verse 18 ought to be a verse that we read to ourselves, quote to ourselves before we get into the Word of God. Open my eyes that I may see wonderful things in your law. Lord, I've read this passage a hundred times, but I need fresh insight. I need you to speak to my heart anew. That's what we need to do. So could I recommend just a couple of very practical things to you? One is this. Read your Bible in different translations and use different study Bibles if you're doing Bible studies. That can be so helpful in bringing fresh new insights and perspective. For instance, my wife right now, Jeannie, is reading through Prayer for the Persecuted Bible, which is put out by Voice of the Martyrs. It's in the New Living Translation, which is a a great translation done about 27 years ago. uh, But the, the study notes in that Bible relate the passages in the Word of God to persecuted peoples. And wow, it has really changed her prayer life. It has really changed the way she sees how the Bible applies to our brethren and and our sisters across the world who are being persecuted. Right now, I'm reading the, uh, uh, the study Bible that has to do with apologetics, the apologetic study Bible. It's in the Holman Christian Standard Version, and I'm reading the notes and all the articles and stuff because that helps me to see how the Bible verses, how the Word of God uh, defends itself and how we see how some people have misunderstood the Bible. It's brought some fresh insight to my own heart and life. Just a couple of years ago, we both read through the chronological Bible, which puts everything in chronological order. So when you're going through the book of Acts, you also have the epistles that Paul wrote that fit into that location in the book of Acts and so forth. But whatever you, whatever you need to do, rediscover the Word of God. Rediscover it because it will bring conviction and repentance to you. And then quickly, the third act. Obedience to the Word brings blessing. In 2 Kings chapter 23, we see Josiah renewing the covenant in verses 1 through 3. The king called together all the elders of Judah and Jerusalem. He went up to the temple of the Lord with the people of Judah, the inhabitants of Jerusalem, the priests and the prophets, all the people from the least to the greatest. He read in their hearing all the words of the book of the covenant, which had been found in the temple of the Lord. The king stood by the pillar not, not the Asherah pole. Those had been cleaned out. One of the pillars at the temple that held up the building. He stood by the pillar, renewed the covenant in the presence of the Lord to follow the Lord and to keep his commands, statutes, and decrees with all his heart 
and all his soul, thus confirming the words of the covenant written in this book, then all of the people pledged themselves to the covenant. So he calls this great assembly. He reads the book of the law, which many Bible students believe that it referred to the book of Deuteronomy, which is often called the book of the law in the Old Testament. So he reads the book of Deuteronomy, and they all reaffirm the, the covenant that God had made through Moses with them as a people. They all reaffirmed that. They renew the covenant. And then his obedience is seen in verses 4 through 30. We're not going to take the time to read those verses. But basically, his obedience is seen in the fact that he destroyed all the vessels for Baal worship and other idols. He did away with all the priests, false priests, and religious prostitutes. He destroyed all the high places outside Jerusalem, high mountains where altars were built, all the places of child sacrifice, all the false altars, including temples that Solomon had built for his pagan wives. He did away with all of those. He stopped the sun worship. He stopped all the occult activities, and he called the people to observe Passover. All of that's in those verses. But if you will read these verses carefully, you'll find five times it is stated the reason why he did this was to be obedient to the word of God. Jot them down and look them up for yourself later. Verses 3, 16, 21, 24, 25. Five times it says the reason he was doing all this was to be obedient to the word. Well, what about us? Are you just reading your Bible, hearing the Bible preached and taught, or are you going to the next step which God intends, and that is obedience? Are you obeying the Bible? You know these verses. Let's just look at them quickly again. James chapter 1, where James tells us, do not merely listen to the word and so deceive yourselves. Do what it says. Anyone who listens to the word but does not do what it says is like someone who looks at his face in a mirror and after looking at himself, goes away and immediately forgets what he looks like. Did any of you all do that this morning? You look in the mirror and say, ah, forget it, walk away. No, you probably did something about the mess you saw in the mirror, right? Sure, and that's what the Bible's telling us we need to do. When we look in the mirror of God's Word, we see the ugliness of our sin, we don't walk away and say, ah, we, we do something about it. So he goes on to say, but whoever looks intently into the perfect law that gives freedom and continues in it, not forgetting what they have heard, but doing it. You see this emphasis on obedience? They will be blessed in what they do. So that's what we're talking about here. Obedience to the Word brings blessing. In 2020, no, excuse me, 2000, uh, my wife and I visited some of our missionaries in Ukraine and also in Hungary. And in Hungary, the missionary wanted me to meet a national pastor, a Hungarian pastor. And so he took me to a little village where I met Geza Bachi. He just died back in uh, this January at 99 years of age. When I met him, um, he was down in a ditch digging footers for a new church they were building. And the missionary got him up and we sat down. And he drank some water and he shared his story with me. He said, you know, I was, I was uh, pastoring back when... Uh, the day of the communism, uh, rule of communism in our country. And he said, I would, I would win a few people to the Lord and we would gather as a church and we would found a church and the communists would find out about it and they would come and take away everything I had, the, the, the church stuff, but also my own personal possessions and move me to another town in Hungary thinking that'll shut him up for sure. 
and he said, kind of, he was a very meek man. He kind of bowed his head, you know, and he dropped his head. And he said, uh, well, I would, you know, I'd win a few people to the Lord. I knew I was supposed to be obedient to the word, to witness to others and share the faith. And so I'd win a few people to the Lord. And we would gather together and start a church. And the communists found out about it, came in again. Same thing, took everything he had. This happened three or four times at least, maybe more. And then finally he looked up at me and he said, the communist helped me plant churches all over Hungary. And that was his perspective. You know what? What I found from that, what I learned from that was, John, examine your own heart and life. If that had happened to you one time, it probably would have shut you up. Not him. Obedience to the Word, regardless of what it costs, brings blessing. Sadly, it was too late for Judah to avert God's judgment. They would go into captivity some 20 years after the reign of Josiah. Makes me wonder if the people agreed to the reforms more out of respect for Josiah than their own conviction. Regardless, there was a quick succession of kings that took Judah right back to the ways of Manasseh, undid everything that Josiah did. But this truth remains from the story of Josiah. This truth remains. God's Word transforms people's lives. If there is any hope for us as the people of God, it is found in adherence to the Word of God. If there is any hope for the lost to come to Christ in our culture, it is through the patient living out of the Word of God and the sharing of our faith with the lost. If there is any hope for our nation to avert God's judgment, it will be a revival that is focused on the Word of God. Let's pray that it will happen. Father, bring your Word again to our lives, our hearts, our consciousness, so that we live it out and we speak it forth to everyone you put in our path. And may your word once again take root, even in this nation, and bring a revival that will bring us back to you. May it do so in our churches, in our own personal lives, and in our neighborhoods. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. For more information, visit us at BibleCenterChurch.com and give us a follow on all platforms at Bible Center.